Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the living God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the Word of the Lord. Join me as we pray together again. Father, we ask that You would dispatch the Holy Spirit to illumine our mind and our heart to the truth of Your Word. That through this text, You would grant us faith to see Christ. Who He is, what He has done, where He now reigns and all that that signifies. God, I pray today that there would be genuine conversions under the preaching of Your Word. And that there would be the upbuilding of Your people in our faith and confidence in Christ. Show us Jesus. We say as the men said to those in the Gospels concerning Christ, Sir, we would see Jesus. Give us Christ. If You withhold every other blessing and give us Him, we know that You will have given us Your best. If You give us everything besides Him, we know that we will have been deprived of all that matters. Give us Christ. Young and old, men and women, we ask that we would all be granted a sight of Him. And we ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, for those who have been with us for at least the last several weeks, we have finally arrived at our sixth and final sermon on those two verses. So you heard me correctly. If you're just joining us today, we've done a six-part series on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That is the key paragraph of the book of Hebrews, and if you think that's a long sermon uh, series on two verses, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, We like them long around here. And we started the series in Hebrews in 2009, and we finally made our way to chapter 12. It's not the only way to slice it, but there's so much meat packed into every little verse. It's, uh, it's hard for us not to try to feast on every morsel that's there. But let me just give you a quick overview of the book of Hebrews if you are joining us, and a refresher for those who have been with us. The main point of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. There is no rival. The day is coming like a freight train when all of humanity, every knee that belongs to every person will bow before the Lord Jesus and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That's from the book of Philippians, but that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. The unrivaled supremacy of Jesus. The main point that the author draws out under the Holy Spirit's inspiration as he's writing the letter of Hebrews, 13 chapters, the main point is the high priesthood of Jesus. And 
in our day, we may be all confused or maybe even unconcerned, which would be worse, about what priesthood means. A priest is simply somebody, biblically speaking, that represents men before God. Ian e. Bounds, the prolific author on prayer, said, prophets talk to men for God, priests talk to God for men. Jesus fills both of those offices perfectly, eternally. But Hebrews' main point is his priesthood. How Jesus takes us to the Father, represents us before him in a way that allows us to be acceptable. The key paragraph of the whole book of Hebrews is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It is the main point. The key phrase is the beginning of verse 2, which says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Some translations say, looking unto Jesus. Guys, we're not the first ones to say things like, well, we'll just quote other people. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Ignatius, first century. Only three words, looking unto Jesus. But in those three words consists the whole secret of life, Theodore Menad. Many have said, what John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, said, looking unto Jesus, period. The duty, privilege, safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. So the key point of the book of Hebrews, the theme of our whole sermon series since 2009 is looking unto Jesus. And that's found in verse 2 of this paragraph. The reason we've taken six parts is because the paragraph breaks itself down like this. If you'll just put your eyes on it, I'll show you what's in it. There are two things that are being said in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, run the race. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. But verse 1 tells us why we should run. If you see it right there in the, in the text, it's because we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And then we're told how to prepare, laying aside every weight, every hindrance, all sin that would slow us down. How will we keep the pace? Right there in verse 1, endurance, patience, perseverance, steady pursuit of Christ. And then the main point, verse 2, looking to Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we're told in verse 2, who is He? He is the author and perfecter of faith. The founder and the finisher of all true faith. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end. Christ is the way into the Christian life. And Christ is the goal of the Christian life. We're also told what He has done. Verse 2, He endured the cross. We're even told how He was enabled to endure such humiliation. Not to mention the wrath of God. He despised the shame. The verse even tells us why he did that. Why he willingly endured such torture. That is, for the joy that is set before him. And now in our final look at this text, which would be worthy of a thousand more looks, we're going to focus on that final phrase of verse 2. Where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our goal today is to obey the verse, not simply know it. 
to look to Jesus, to fix your eyes on Him. If you would fill your heart up with prayer, launching it into the throne room, throne room of God throughout this entire sermon, Lord, show me Jesus, who He really is, then I believe the Spirit would be pleased to attend that prayer with His Word, with His power. Let's obey the verse. Fix our eyes on Jesus. We've used the illustration many times. We've stolen it from other people that to look to Jesus is not a generic Bible command. Not a Jesus of our imagination. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew that days will come when people will say, there's the Christ. No, there's the Christ. No, He's over there. And Jesus said there will be many Jesuses. We're not called to look to any indiscriminate Jesus of our imagination. The make me feel good Jesus. The give me everything I want Jesus. The prosperity so-called gospel Jesus. The health and wealth Jesus. The get me out of hell free, live however I want to, still go to heaven Jesus. Not the Jesus of our imagination. But many have said the real Jesus is like this beautiful, finely cut diamond of purest quality. And to look to Him is to look at every facet of His infinite glory. Today, we simply want to focus on one facet of the real Jesus' infinite glory. That is, that He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix the eye of your faith on that Jesus. Verse 2, Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit can preach this sermon better than I can. Ask Him to take that phrase to the deepest part of your soul. There are two truths contained in that little phrase that we want to celebrate together. Where Jesus is, His position, and what Jesus is doing, His posture. Where is He? He's at the right hand of the throne of God. What is He doing? He is sitting down. And that is so significant for our salvation. Let's take them one at a time. Where Jesus is. The right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit's not trying to make His book longer. He's not putting in filler, extra words. He could have just said, He's with God. That's not what the Holy Spirit chose to say. He could have said, He's at the right hand of God. That's not what the Holy Spirit chose to say. The Holy Spirit thought that it would be useful for our faith and our understanding of the Gospel and living the Christian life to know that Jesus is in a particular position. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. It speaks of His dignity, His authority, His deity, that He is divine, that He is Himself God. No one anywhere in the Bible is elevated to parallel status with God except Jesus because He's God. The most popular verse in the first century was not the most popular verse that's... Uh, Widely popular in the 21st century. Every verse in the Bible is good. People often ask me, where do you think I should read? And I just say, pick any spot. It's all good. There are verses in our day that have become wildly popular 
usually because they're so wildly abused. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me does not mean what most people in our day use it to supposedly mean. Do not judge lest you be judged, though very popular in our day, does not mean what people think that it means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, is rock-solid truth, and you can bank your eternal soul on what is contained there. But it often doesn't, it doesn't mean what it's often used to mean. Those verses are popular in our day, and some for good reason. But the most popular verse in the first century would have been Psalm 110, verse 1. I deduce that, I know that, because it's the most commonly quoted verse in the New Testament. Many books in the New Testament, Hebrews, many times over, quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus quoted Psalm 110, verse 1 several times. Pop quiz, without looking, what does Psalm 110, verse 1 say? Many of us would probably fail the exam. That's okay. Your, your grade before God doesn't depend on your ability to recite the verse. But knowing what it teaches, your soul hangs in the balance. If it's not true, you will never be saved. Because it's true, even somebody as sinful as you and I can be truly saved. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One more time. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' use of that verse is like He commonly did to answer a question with a question. The Pharisees, the rulers, the Jews come and ask Jesus a question and instead of responding to their question, He goes right to the root. And a lot of times the way He does that is by presenting a different question they ask him something about john the baptist he would say do you think he's from a man or appointed by god and they wouldn't answer the question for fear of the crowds similarly the way he used psalm 110 in the gospel of matthew into chapter 24 he said uh, i'll answer your question but first let me ask you a question it's about psalm 110 <clears throat> how does david call him Lord if he is in fact his son? The answer is obvious. David's not writing about himself. David's not writing about a mere mortal. The text clearly says, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Meaning this psalm isn't about me, it's not about you, it's about somebody categorically different than us. God is talking about God in that verse. That's the reference that I believe the writer of Hebrews had in his mind when he wrote the end of verse 2. Sit at my right hand. The reason I would think he would have it in his mind is because he quoted it in chapter 1, he quoted it in chapter 5, he alluded to it in chapter 8, and he made such a direct allusion in chapter 10 that you might call it a quotation. And here we are in chapter 12, and he's saying it again. Sit at my right hand. 
This is where Jesus is. The elevation of Jesus of Nazareth to the highest place in heaven confirms the significant truths about who He is on which our salvation depends. It confirms to us that Jesus is God. He is at the Father's right hand, parallel in elevation. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28. It signifies that He's worthy of worship. The one on the throne in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, 5, 7, 9, 14, 20, and 21, is Jesus. He is worthy of all worship, even as you sit in your padded pew, the angels in heaven are singing the chorus of Revelation chapter 4, and they were doing it while you were asleep last night. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Because thou didst create all things, and for thy will they did exist and were created. As soon as the 24 elders finished that chorus, the four living creatures, these holy angelic beings that we find in Isaiah chapter 6, shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as soon as they finish, the chorus repeats. Jesus is worthy of all worship because He is God. He possesses all authority. And Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand also signifies something else about His sacrifice. He was already at the Father's right hand long before He came to this sin-torn world. He's eternal. He is, as the confessions say, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. He's God. He is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. All the fullness of God packed down into bodily form. Jesus is God. He was at the Father's right hand before He came to earth. He had all authority before He came to earth. He was worthy of worship before He came to earth. His being at the Father's right hand signifies something gloriously amazing about His ability to save. It means that after His earthly life and ministry, after He walked this sin-torn world without committing sin, after He was tempted in every way just like you are, after He experienced weakness, hunger, after He was deprived and ridiculed, being marginalized, pushed to the side, and when they got finished doing that to Him, they took fistfuls of His beard, pulled it out of His cheeks, and beat Him with a cat of nine tails. After they marched Him up to Golgotha, after they tacked Him like a piece of meat to a splintered piece of railroad tie, wood, after they dropped the cross in a hole in the ground, after they left Him there to die under the wrath of God, then, God raised Him from the dead, elevated Him to the highest place. Our verse says, the right hand of the throne of God. What does that say about our Savior? It means that God the Father has accepted His sacrifice in your stead. I love the way Hebrews just unloads this truth chapter after chapter. I'll spare you from re-preaching the whole book and give you two examples. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer, I believe, is trembling as his quill is in his hand. 
I try to imagine the episodes of the Bible, and I probably imagine them wrong, but I imagine that that piece of apartment, parchment was tear-stained. I believe his finger is trembling, and the scribes had a hard time copying what he wrote down. He's saying in Hebrews chapter 9, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices by thousands and thousands and thousands of priests, all in an earthly temple. My Jesus. My Jesus. Hebrews 9.24 did not minister in a temple made with human hands, but He entered into heaven itself, and I quote, now to appear in the prosopon, Greek word, of God for us. New American Standard says presence of God. Literal translation, face. Jesus is sitting in front of the face of God, but that's not a period. Two little words. Prepositional phrase. For us he is at the right hand of the throne of god for you the old testament has a picture through a real episode that happened in human history that is a foreshadowing of what i'm trying to draw out of this phrase in this verse god had saved a pagan named Abram from the land of Ur and called him out of that idolatrous city to follow him eventually to go to a place that God had promised. Abraham, as you know, tried in his own means to carry through God's promises, but Ishmael wasn't the answer God promised to a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. This time next year, you'll have a son. Isaac is that son. God then tells Abraham sometime later, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, sacrifice that boy, Isaac. The one through whom I made a promise to keep my promises. Sacrifice him. You know the story. Abraham, Abraham takes Isaac up on the Mount of Moriah. He has the dagger. Isaac is bound on the altar. And just before he plunges the knife into the boy's chest, in obedience to God, the angel intervenes. Do not touch the lad, for now I know that you fear God. And you have not withheld from him your son, your only son. In that moment, God spoke promises. Again, on the top of Mount Moriah, to your seed, singular, not plural, Galatians 3.16, God made promises to Abraham and his seed, not seeds as referring to many, I'm quoting directly, but to his seed, that is Christ. Isaac is... Spared, he grows, he's married, has a son named Jacob. Jacob again receives magnificent promises from God. I'm going to send a Savior. Through your line will come the Redeemer. The only Savior that will ever be. You must trust me to have the forgiveness of your sins. You must trust in Him, what He'll do for you. Jacob believes God's promises. Jacob has sons. We think people are crazy today. You wouldn't believe the stories we hear in line at the grocery store. For having six kids, Jacob had 12 boys. The second youngest was a boy named Joseph. Speeding, speeding forward rapidly in the story, his brothers hated him and despised him because he was the favored son, not only by his earthly father Jacob, but by God. He had the multicolored tunic. You know the account. The brothers were jealous. Jacob sends Joseph out to tend the lambs with his brothers. His brothers find him out in the field. And instead of welcoming him to tend the lambs and make some money for the day, they throw him into a pit. They decide to kill him. 
One of the brothers, Benjamin, has a better idea and says, no, let's not kill him. Let's profit from him. And they sold him into slavery. The account speeding forward rapidly. Joseph sold into slavery. His father, Jacob, thinks that he's dead. The favored son has died. Joseph, uh, Jacob is weeping. Joseph is in a caravan down to Egypt. And what happens to him there? He faithfully serves as a slave in Potiphar's house. He's wrong, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife for making sexual advances that he never made. He's thrown into prison for something like 13 years. The Pharaoh of the day in Egypt had a cupbearer and a baker who forgot about him after they promised him that they would mention him to the king because he was good at interpreting dreams and the king was having some dreams. But they left him there for two more years in God's providence. He's brought eventually to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And what happened next? The key point of the whole story. Pharaoh takes the ring off his finger, puts it on Joseph's hand. It has a signet seal on top of it. Anything Joseph stamps with that seal is as authoritative as if Pharaoh himself had stamped it. The boy who was sold as a slave and put in prison for a decade is now the ruler of all the land. That's the picture of Hebrews 12 too. The brothers who sold Joseph into slavery come begging for bread because God in His providence sent a famine on the land. Isaac says, go down to Egypt. I've heard they have bread. I heard they have grain. The brothers come to Joseph who's on the throne and they don't recognize him. And Joseph immediately recognizes who they are. Think about what they had done to him and think about what he endured as a result. And instead of giving them vengeance, he only wants to find out if his younger brother Benjamin and his father Isaac are still alive. So through a series of events, he confirms the fact that they're alive and instead of squashing them, and bringing his father safely into his authority, he provides for them all. And he wouldn't have been able to show them the mercy that sustained their life and, by the way, the promises of God had he not been elevated to the highest place. And he wouldn't have been elevated to the highest place had he not undergone that suffering. Do you see it in Hebrews 12 too? in a way that's so much greater that it's not even worthy to compare with little Joseph, all due respect to him. Not even worthy to compare. The King of Glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God sent him from heaven's height down to this sin-torn world to live the life in front of the face of God that you and I should have lived. He died the death under the wrath of God that you and I should have died. He's then elevated to the highest place and here we come, beggars for bread. We're the guilty party. He should crush us, but there He sits at the Father's right hand, Hebrews 9.24, in front of the face of God for us. Come boldly to the throne of grace for Jesus fills the throne and those He kills, He makes alive. He hears the sigh or groan. Poor bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within, come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. That's where He is. Now we get to celebrate what He's doing. 
The verse says not only something about his position, right hand of the throne of God, but number two, something about his posture. He is sitting down. It may not strike you as significant, but I pray that in a few minutes time, it will feel like the most significant truth you've ever heard. If we obey verse 2, look unto Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Maybe I should have started this point by asking you, when you conceive of Him, what do you conceive? A true sight of Jesus that would be in accord with the Bible would faithfully conceive of Him as ministering to children as He did so many times in the Gospels. Perhaps exercising His miraculous power Drawing near to you in your time of need, like all of us today are in very deep need. He loves to come close to us. Maybe you conceive of Him in His obedience to all of God's commands, Matthew 5.17, and filling up all righteousness. Maybe you conceive of Him interacting with the Pharisees or preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're most common conception of Him is centered at Calvary's cross. You see Him dying under God's wrath for your sin, for which you are deeply thankful. Maybe you conceive of His burial after a very real death. Or maybe it's His rising again to life forevermore. But if you look at the most common biblical portrait of Jesus, none of those things are what you would conceive. The most common biblical portrait of Jesus is in passage, passages like you heard read from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It doesn't say set your mind on things above, period. It says set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind means think about that. Marinate on that. Look to Jesus in that way. See His seatedness. Paul told the Ephesians that his main prayer for them, forgive me because I make this comment almost every time I reference Ephesians, but some may not have heard it. Paul was their pastor for three and a half years. He knew their names and faces. He knew their kids' names. He probably did some funerals. Maybe even officiated a wedding or two. He knew these people. It's the longest he ever stayed at any church. And he told them that his main prayer for them was Ephesians 1.20. That the eyes of their heart would be opened so that they would see something. Namely, that God raised Jesus from the dead and, quote, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. I want you to see Jesus sitting down. Why would He be so adamant about that? The whole book of Revelation is dominated by a single piece of furniture. You guessed it. It is a throne. But that's not the focal point. The one sitting on the throne in Revelation chapter 3 said to the church at Laodicea, talk about abused verses in our day. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's not an evangelistic verse. Jesus is not talking to lost people. 
He's talking to the church of Laodicea. He says to them in the very next verse of Revelation 3.21, from his seated position on the throne, quote, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. The best news of the good news of the Gospel is you get Christ's privileges in front of the Father. Revelation 4.2 John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Revelation chapter 4 is 11 verses long. Seven times in 11 verses you see Jesus sitting on His throne. Revelation 5 verse 1 and verse 7 shows Jesus sitting on His throne. Revelation 17, uh, pardon me, chapter 7 verses 9, 10, 11, 15, and 17 shows a panoramic view of an endless sea of worshipers who are right now enjoying Jesus. And you guessed it, in every single one of those verses, Jesus is sitting on His throne. Revelation 21, God brings His throne, quote, among men to, quote, dwell among us so that we will be His people and He will be our God. What does He bring? His throne. Why does He bring a chair? Why does He bring a chair? Revelation 22.3 sums up the whole Bible. It starts with God's people in God's presence and it ends with God's people in God's presence. Revelation 22.3 There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Why are the biblical authors so concerned that we see Jesus seated on His throne in heaven at the right hand of God. I'm so glad you asked. Turn one page backwards to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10. Tell me if you can pick out the point that the writer's trying to make. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and verse 12. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He goes on to continue the quote from the Old Testament, waiting from that time onward, Psalm 1101 until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. A lot of priests, a lot of sacrifices, day after day after day, every one of them, verse 11, stood up. Jesus, verse 12, one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That tells us something. The reason no priest ever sat in God's presence in the Old Covenant is because it was an emblem, a parable, a sermon that their work was not finished. 
Hebrews chapter 10, if you're still there, in verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those priests knew that they weren't finally atoning for sin. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 says, in a very long sentence in verses 1 to 4, that they, verse 2, by the same sacrifices offered continually year by year, never make perfect those who draw near to God. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, verse 2, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. The Old Testament priest sacrifice was actually counterproductive in dealing with sin, according to that passage. Because every time the priest went into the presence of God, it only reminded the worshiper that their sin was not gone. But verse 2 says in Hebrews 12, Jesus, unlike any of those priests, sat down. Sat down. Hebrews chapter 1 gives 39 descriptions of Jesus in 13 verses. The last description it gives of Jesus, a.k.a. the thing He wants you to really be stuck in your mind. Hebrews 1.13 To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at My right hand? You've read Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. His glory filled the temple. Smoke filled the temple. The train of His robe filled the temple. Meaning all of God is everywhere all the time in heaven. And then He said, I saw the seraphim. There were four of them. They had six wings. With two they flew. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. And they cried out to one another. Not to Him. Jesus, but to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We know it's Jesus, not because we're amazing Bible interpreters, but because John 12.41 says they spoke of Jesus. And it quotes that passage. These angels, are they sitting? Nope. The angels in Revelation 4, the angels in Revelation 5, they stand. may not strike you as ultra-significant until maybe you're reminded one angel killed 186,000 people in one night in the Old Testament. They are mighty. They can do way more than you and I can do. And as mighty as they are, and that's not the best part of it, they're holy. They've never seen sin in heaven. They've never tasted sin. They've never had their life changed by the regenerating power of the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't know what it's like to be moving this way and to have the Holy Spirit open your eyes to your rebellion against God, cause you to be convicted of sin in a 2 Corinthians 7 kind of way so that you're sorrowful to the point of repentance and you turn to God. They don't know what that's like. And not even holy angels sit down in the presence of God. To which of the angels did he ever say, Hebrews 1.13, sit at my right hand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously he's never said that. Here's Jesus sitting down. In conclusion, 
I have three things to say to us that I think would apply to anybody who might be here. Number one, take heart, Christian. Your redemption is already accomplished. As much as we love them, our Catholic friends need to know that Jesus is not still suffering on the cross or what they would call the Eucharist. He's not re-sacrificed time and again. The crucifix is not an accurate symbol. Jesus is not still on the cross. If He was repetitively sacrificed, it would fly in the face of what we just read in Hebrews chapter 10. One sacrifice for all time, then set down. His seatedness speaks to the accomplished aspect of your redemption. He is still ministering for His people. He's just not suffering for our sins. He ministers through intercession. Mediation. He represents us before the Father. And I think in a conversation that goes something like this, only better, Father, when you look at Jordan Thomas, don't look at his sin. Look at my sacrifice and all my righteousness. Past tense sacrifice. Righteousness forever. Your redemption is accomplished. Jesus is all your salvation. You can't fit through the narrow gate holding all your good works. Jesus is the only one whose works save us. And when He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, it's a signifier to the universe that the Father says Jesus is enough. God is not going to ask that question, I hope this encourages you, that our evangelistic tactics have encouraged us to ask people. It might help in evangelism, Maybe so. But the question goes something like this. If you were to die today and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? Well, good news, God's not going to ask you that question. It may be bad news that He's not going to ask you that because Revelation chapter 1 says His eyes are like fire and will burn right through your words and see into your soul. He's not asking you to figure out. He already knows. But let's just say He asked you that question. And you're a real Christian. Your response would be something like this. If he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Any real Christian is going to say, you shouldn't. At least not on the basis of my own righteousness. Not my goodness, not my merits, not my religion. I did not put your arm behind your back when I was 10 years old and I prayed the prayer to ask Jesus into my heart. You owe me nothing. You are not in my debt. But the real Christian would follow that up with something like this. The man at your right hand. The real Christian is going to point away from himself and say, all my hope for any of your acceptance is all bound up in Him. He, He, He. I know that He has been accepted on my behalf because you've elevated Him to your right hand and you've allowed Him to do what no other priest could ever do. He sat down. The work is finished. I give myself to Him. So Christian, number one, take heart. Your redemption is accomplished. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. No one, John chapter 10, will snatch you from the Father's hand 
or the Son's hand, and the Father and the Son are one, that's triple security. 1 Peter chapter 1, your salvation, because of the finished work of Jesus, who He is and what He's done, 1 Peter chapter 1, your salvation is fivefold secure. You are protected by the power of God, not because you're good at believing the gospel, but because Jesus is such a sufficient Savior. Redemption, when accomplished, is also applied. So number two would be, if you're not a Christian, believe the gospel. I don't know exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but I think I have some pretty close ideas. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's explaining the gospel, and it's like he stops in mid-sentence in verse 19, and he says, I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he goes on to say, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you're not a Christian, we have no sledgehammer to hit you with. We're not ready to crush you. In fact, this is a safe place for you to ask honest questions about God. You don't have to keep up uh, you know, pretensions or appearances. It's okay. If you're not in Christ, though, there's a lot of people here who would love to talk to you from God's Word about what Christ has done and what a Christian is. Believe the Gospel. On the authority of God's Word, if you're not yet in Christ, if you'll turn from your sin, not only agree with God that what you've done is wrong, but also turn from yourself to join God in making much of God through what Christ has done for you and where He now sits. Jesus promised in John chapter 6, He will never cast you out. If you'll believe that that Jesus died for your sin and rose again so that you could be made righteous in front of God's face, Romans 4.24, God promised He'll save you. So first, Christians, take heart. Your redemption is accomplished. If you're not yet in Christ, believe the Gospel. And then I know an application that applies to everybody because it's right here in the verse. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him. He is heaven's favorite. If looking to Christ in this concentrated way in this sermon doesn't seem appealing to you, I can promise you that heaven will be a drastic bore. Jesus said in John chapter 17, I want all of my people to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory. In Thessalonians, Paul said Jesus is coming back to be marveled at among all who believe. 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says, if you set your hope on Him, you will purify yourself, you will be purified just as He is pure. And then, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, you'll see Him face to face. Just as the book of Revelation shows, He's the centerpiece of heaven. What kind of fools would we have to be to think that we're going to be interested in looking upon Christ's glory forever if for a little lifetime we wouldn't be interested in looking at Him now. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lock on to Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. Moor the life, moor the ship of your life to the dock of Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus. That's the point of Hebrews. That's the point of the passage. And that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you that you've exalted Jesus to the highest place. That you've given him the name above every name. That he is Lord and that doesn't depend on us ascribing to him that office. We thank you that you have given him that name. That you've set him at your right hand. And that he is in fact seated. Father, we give you glory that you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as enough for the redemption 